I would tell myself this, this false story of, I'm the one putting us through this. If, if I maybe just did something differently, then there could have been a different outcome and I wouldn't be sad, but then he wouldn't be sad. Like I was just juggling these emotions and something that I have learned about guilt in the grieving process, which is so important, is that guilt is our brain's way of trying to make us feel like we are in control of a situation that is out of our control. Ash, again, I do want to thank you for being here. It means a lot. This podcast would be nothing without someone like you sitting across from me. So I just want to thank you again. Well, thank you for having me. It's my honor to be having this conversation with you. So I'm excited. To kind of get the the ball rolling, if you will, uh, please, for my audience and people that may not know of you just yet, uh, how, how has grief been a part of your life? Oh my gosh, I feel like I could talk about that for a really long time, but Grief is something that has absolutely derailed me and also is something that has shown me beauty and compassion and learning and has changed who I am as a person. A lot of my grief stems from, if we go back just a couple years ago, you know, I feel like the pandemic 2022, and listen, I know. We're also sick of talking about the pandemic, but the truth is, is that it kind of created this equal playing field on some level or another where we all were experiencing some sort of grief. And so when I share about my grief, um, I go back to that place because people during that time, we all had it. And for me specifically, I was 16 weeks pregnant so excited to welcome this addition into our family. We had just moved into our dream home to plant some roots. And we moved the same week that the pandemic shut everything down here in Phoenix, Arizona. And a couple of days later after moving in, I got really sick and ended up um, needing to be rushed to the hospital where we learned that I had gone septic, which was very unexpected and, and something that just doesn't happen to a healthy pregnant woman with no warning normally. When we were there, we first checked on the baby and baby was good. And I was like, I can get through anything, right? I can get through anything. Knowing my baby's good, I can do this for us. Um, and then they told me I'd gone septic and that it was also the first day that hospitals were shutting out outside visitors. So I had to be admitted into the hospital alone. And I remember in that moment feeling absolutely even more terrified than I already was and saying goodbye to my husband. And there was a moment um, in the next couple of days where I thought that I was going to die. I was on this verge of my body trying to keep my, me alive, a, a life inside of me alive and fight this infection that had gone into my kidneys and I didn't know anything about sepsis, but what I, and I'm glad I didn't at that time because I would have been even more afraid, but a lot of times you'll go into kidney failure or you can lose a limb. Um, the rates of fatality is very high. And there was a moment where I thought I was going to die and uh, I came to this rapid response team that was called to be surrounding me. So there's like eight to 10 doctors. And I remember I looked at one of them, and his name is Willie. And I said, Willie, am I going to die right now? And he looked at me and he said, Ashley, we're here to support you. And you are also the only one who can pull yourself through what you need to get through 
right now so that you can get to the other side of this. And as they stabilize me over the next few hours, just this gut instinct, this motherly instinct, I knew that I couldn't survive that and keep my pregnancy viable during that. There's just something in me where I was like, whatever just happened, this was too much to sustain both of us. And so I asked for another ultrasound. And it was at that point, they wheeled me down um, to get an ultrasound. And it took just, the monitor was up for literally three seconds. And it was enough for both of us to see that our baby, my baby no longer had a heartbeat. And I ended up delivering him all alone the next morning. Um, I was by myself. They still wouldn't let my husband come in. And they also told me I had some more time. And because I was in so much pain, I didn't realize that I had been in labor all night because I was just in pain. So adding more pain or just all at that point, I was just not doing well. Um, And that entered this new layer of grief into my life because I've had it before, but this loss of our son, but also the loss, the grief of losing this future dream we had, uh, the grief of being able to trust my body, this betrayal trauma that came, and then this grief that now entered in our relationship where we were both grieving differently and how do we keep moving forward? So I guess the long story short is that is just part of my experience with grief and has shaped how I view the world and my life now. I think you tapped into an important angle. Uh, because you know, normally, I mean, normally, quote unquote, I feel like when grief is discussed or loss is discussed, it's always in the facet of who you lost and the biological death. But then you tapped into how there's other layers to that loss. You're grieving the future. You're grieving, you know, your betrayal of your own body. So it's just interesting to hear those, the multifacets of grief that comes to you. And I feel like, it's hard to decipher sometimes maybe what you're grieving in the way you just explained it. So is it important to decipher those different layers of grief at any specific phase or is the process to healing all those different layers of grief the same? I think it's really important to decipher them. Something that I want to point out that is so important is that we live in a society that tells us to get over it, that tells us to move on. And when we talk about grief, often what the first thing that comes into our head is someone has died. And while yes, of course, that is true, that brings a universal layer of grief. Grief also comes in so many other forms, any type of loss. And it could be loss of a sense of safety. It could be loss of a friendship, but that person's still alive. Loss of a job, loss of... you not being where you thought you were going to be right now in your life. There's so many different types of losses that bring grief. But often when we don't recognize that, we start trying to push it down because we don't acknowledge our emotions and then we don't validate it. And so part of the healing process that is so important that so many of us skip over, not to our own fault, but because literally outside of us is is getting us this pressure to just get over things, we don't recognize that our grief is coming in different layers. And so then everything just ends up being shoved away because we don't give ourselves permission to feel it. I I, I agree. And and, and one of those layers that, you know, I've heard you discuss before and I preluded is the dynamic of 
being in a relationship? Because I, I've heard you say on one of your earlier podcasts, or maybe it was your husband, how you know it's the focus, and it's not right or wrong. So don't get me wrong there, but it, I, I've even focused on the 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 mother because of course she's went through the process, and you know physically and emotionally, obviously that uh, a man can never understand. But there is that dynamic of the partner on the other side, and the dynamic of the relationship, and what is that dynamic? And what what tools have you learned more specifically in your approach to maintaining your relationship, your own grief, and your partner's grief? I love this question because I also think it's really important to acknowledge the fact that men, just in general from society, aren't really given the permission to show emotions. So whatever the type of grief is that you are going through, it can feel really complicated. It hasn't really been modeled that it's okay to cry or to talk about it or to express it. Men are taught to be strong, to be the leader, to suck it up, right? Like those All of those phrases that we hear growing up become internalized, but then when something happens and you're needing to grieve it and express it outwardly, we've never been taught how to do that. In a relationship, it can get really tricky because usually, and I'm going to use air quotes, but you can't see me using air quotes, but usually research has shown us, and of course, this is in a heterosexual relationship. And of course, not every man is the same and not every woman is the same. But research has shown us that there are some very key ways that men and women grieve differently because both of societal pressures and also biologically. But one of those things is is that men usually don't talk about it and instead want to move on from it. And they do so by working more or leaving more or just trying to stay busy more And women, most women, want to talk about it. We want to be heard. We process it by talking outwardly. And sometimes we can keep saying the same story over and over and over again. So then when you are in a relationship, coming from a female perspective, and you see your man just working or not talking about it, we start telling ourselves a few things. One of those things is, you just don't care. How is this not affecting you? How have you moved on already? And that can cause a lot of friction in the relationship because you harbor this resentment or you're mad that you're not talking about it. And on the other end, the the man can be like, "All all I am noticing is that you're talking about this all of the time. So something that was helpful for my husband and I is that we established a really safe space that was called check-ins. So we would literally designate a specific amount of time where either if I noticed he was having a hard time or he noticed I was having a hard time, either because just visibly we're like, you're not okay, or we're noticing kind of coping patterns that weren't necessarily the best options to choose, um, the, we would be approached by the other person and we would say, hey, can we have a check-in right now? And during that check-in time, it just really created this safe space that the other person was allowed to say whatever they were feeling. And then part of the rule though, was that it needed to be validated. And that is the most important thing when you are going through grief alone and with someone else, if you're in a partnership, is acknowledging and validating that emotion without acknowledging each other, saying, I see you're having a hard time, or I know you're having a hard time, or you are so validated in having a hard time, 
not doing that means that we aren't allowing open communication. It means that we're trying to just have someone shove it away. Um, And so I would say that that was the number one thing that helped our relationship. Yeah, again, the dynamic with men and women is, uh, I I think it's pretty staggering. I mean, even just, I brought this up a bunch of times in my podcast. I mean, with such a vulnerable conversation as this podcast is still like 75%, 70% are women. So that, that dynamic of how you just explained it, I feel like I feel like it's sometimes just the, the feeling of judgment, and I guess that's where the safe space comes in. I'm not saying it's always judgment. I mean, it could be many reasons. The stigma of men having to do it, tie up your boots and just, just keep toughen moving. up. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I and I wonder, like, I mean, yeah, there is. You can be tough, but sometimes it, I don't know. I think uh, when you do let your guard down, I think that's a different level of toughness. Yes, the vo- the vulnerability also that that re- requires. A lot of people don't feel safe doing that. Most people live their entire lives never being able to acknowledge how they actually are feeling because it's easier to tell ourselves that this diet is going to fix us or making more money is going to fix us or having the kids or the house or the car or whatever that thing is, telling ourselves that that is going to be what fixes us, that's easier than to acknowledge the reality of I'm not actually okay. Actually, what I need is to go deeper into this feeling and it's really uncomfortable and I'm afraid. It is easier to pretend and tell ourselves that happiness is just on the other side of this whatever thing rather than to tell ourselves I I need to do some work on myself and it's going to be really hard. And I think that that is something that really prevents both men and women from being able to move forward in our lives. And if it's not acknowledged, it just pops up somewhere else, right? Grief unexpressed always pops up in another way. And part of healing is creating a safe environment where it can be expressed in a healthy way so that we can continue to move forward. So Going back to the dynamic of a relationship, doing everything we can individually and then as a couple in our power to create that safe space where emotions can start to be processed is a very important part of the healing process for both parties involved. And what was that individual process for you? I'm I'm sure the, I mean, without knowing it experientially, that first year, those first moments when it happened, week, days, months, uh, I'm sure you probably felt alone even with your partner? Like, was there, was there an aspect of that? I felt really alone. And I think part of it, specifically with pregnancy loss for women, is that both of us were grieving the loss of our baby. And physically, I was grieving this mistrust of my body. I was grieving feeling unsafe. I was grieving, we call it betrayal trauma. And I felt so betrayed by my body. When I tell you that I just wanted to run away but then feeling stuck because how do you, I I couldn't run away from myself. And then part of me resented, honestly, my husband, that he wasn't having to carry that part of the grief. But then I would also feel guilty. I felt guilty that I would tell myself this this false story of, I'm the one putting us through this. If, If I maybe just did something differently, then there could have been a different outcome and I wouldn't be sad, but then he wouldn't be sad. Like I was just juggling these emotions and something that I have learned about guilt in the grieving process, which is so important, is that 
Guilt is our brain's way of trying to make us feel like we are in control of a situation that is out of our control. So often we tell ourselves, if I would have just done something differently, then the outcome would have been different. So I'm to blame. So that therefore, in the future, if I do something differently, then it's going to be safe for me to experience this thing again or to to live in this very unpredictable world. But the truth is, is that guilt's just trying to protect us and those thoughts aren't actually true. And it took me a while to work through those. Uh, I think my guilt, you know, guilt causes shame. And I think a lot of my guilt and shame also created this block between my husband and I because if I feel guilty just existing with me, how then am I supposed to enter into a relationship and feel safe being with you when I'm not trusting myself right now? So that definitely, on top of all of the loss, right? Like on top of grieving our dream and our baby, I also had this grief of feeling so betrayed by my own self. So how'd you work through that? I know you gave some, you know, the check-ins with your husband, but was there anything in particular that you individually worked through? And I asked that question individually because I feel like not, not everyone has a partner to bounce it off. I mean, in this case, obviously there's some partner in play, but just with loss in general, not everyone has that. So I'm always interested in the approach of how someone can work through loss in any capacity when maybe you don't have a support system. I love this question. And I first want to answer it by saying that I now view grief very differently than I used to. Society tells us that grief is something to be fixed, to move on from. But what I have learned is that grief is actually something to be experienced. And I had to get to this place in my healing journey where I could view grief as something to be experienced. Because once I stopped trying to run from it, then is when I was able to invite healing in. So what did that look like for me? It looked like a lot of things. And because grief is something to be experienced and not get over, it's something I still go through. I, I still every day am in this process of, of trying to heal and, and working through my emotions. I think that we want to believe that healing is this one big moment where magically we just feel better, but healing is really consistent movement moving forward, making small actions every day. Part of that for me is that I needed to start feeling safe in my body again. So I started doing yoga. I started doing things that made my body feel good in that way. Um, I also needed to start learning how to trust myself again. A lot of times with grief, because of the guilt we feel and the self-blame, we lose trust in ourselves. So for me, I literally would write down lists of reasons why I can trust myself every day. So whether that's as simple as I ate this thing for breakfast today because I remember to feed myself in my grief and it made me feel really good. Wow, look at that decision I made that I can trust myself to take care of my body. Or maybe it was a bigger business decision, but I, the brain needs proof that things are working. So I started writing things down. Writing is actually a very healing practice to do um, because it allows us to express our emotions somewhere else, lets them live somewhere else outside of us. And so writing for me has always been where I've turned. That's why I'm an author of three books. I actually 
finished one of my books during this time. And that was really helpful for me. Of course, there's therapy. I am always a huge proponent of therapy. And if therapy's not accessible right now, our grief needs to be witnessed. That's the, num- that's the number one need of those who are grieving. So that might even look like going to a free support group or an online support group. If you're not having that in-person support, there needs to be someone who can sit with you to witness your grief. And that was something else that was really important to me too. So I'm, I'm taking a couple of things from that in regards to your process of writing things down and and showing your brain proof, if you will. It seems as if you were, I feel like, I don't know where I got this from, Bob Proctor or some shit. Excuse my language. Uh, don't excuse my language. People have heard this podcast enough. Sorry. Uh, but it's like, I think it was like a, a, a fear and flip. Like a fear and flip in a sense that like when you start thinking of something negative or have a fear towards something, you just flip it to literally the exact opposite and you start, te- you start coping your brain with some more positive thoughts. So it seems as if, I don't want to say tricking because it's truthful. You, you were doing things that were more healthy, if you will, but it was a way of flipping those negative thoughts in a way. So I wonder how much of those internal conversations can either put us deeper in whatever we're going through, or it can put us in the other direction in a positive way. So I I feel like it's a very important lesson to have those thoughts. And it's almost, it's almost like when I said the word tricking earlier, I feel like it is, you kind of, you are training or kind of tricking your brain because there's moments when like when it comes to positive thought in my head, I was never like, I, I believed it because, oh, it sounds nice. But in the moment of actually putting it into action, it's like, I'm, I feel like I'm lying to myself. So like when you are writing those things down, is it important to focus on things that are factual? Like I actually did this, I actually did that in order to glaze over that. I feel like I'm lying to myself just to be positive. Yes. Writing down the actual tangible things that you have done helps so much. I like to call it a reframe, a reframe of our thoughts. And I think that sometimes, especially in our grief, our thoughts, and here's the truth, is we have up to 90,000 thoughts a day, which is so wild. And what we know about that is that over 87% of those are negative thoughts. And a huge majority of the negative thoughts we think every day are recurring thoughts. So then that's creating our reality. And especially when you're in grief, that grief takes over every part of your body. You are in true survival mode. And so, you know, willing your way out of something with positive thinking when you're in grief, it's not possible. And it's it's actually also not healthy because that means we're skipping over what we are actually feeling. So For me, helping me reframe my thoughts, I use a word and a lot. And has become so powerful because I can can say, man, I feel so sad and upset right now. And I also have so much joy because of X, Y, and Z. So it's acknowledging while also creating a path to move forward in. I love that. And, you know, I, I've, uh, there's a book I read a while back. I forget the author. I mean, it's a popular book called Letting Go. And then recently I started re-listening to Alan, uh, Alan Watts. Not sure if you know who he is, but he, he was kind of talking to letting go. And it kind of reminded me of the process. Cause I've always, I don't want to say I struggle. Maybe I do with the idea of like, okay, I, I kind of get the idea of letting go and that release, but like, how do you, how do you let, how do you let go of something? And the way it was described in that book and what I listened to was, it was a focus on just allowing yourself to feel. So I think it was a way of 
I think what you said, not getting distracted, not how men may just go work, go work and kind of diverting your away from the problem. So it's an idea of just sitting in your emotion, allowing yourself to fear it, feel it, like literally sit through the storm. But also part of that was, from my understanding, not naming or creating stories with those emotions, which is hard to do because if I feel angry, I feel depressed. Oh, I feel angry or depressed because I lost my dad or I got, I just broke up with my girlfriend or whatever. So you're constantly storytelling and attaching your feelings to something. And this process was explained that to let go is release the resistance and don't put a name or title towards that feeling. Don't attach the emotion to whatever the problem is and allow yourself just to feel the emotion as, a, as an emotion because it's just a feeling and it's kind of separate from you. What do you think about that? I love that. There's a phrase that I hear often in the therapy world, and it's, you can't heal what you don't feel. And being able to allow yourself to feel those emotions so that you can move through them without the story behind it can be so validating and empowering for you. I also want to point out, it's really hard to allow yourself to feel your emotion when you don't feel safe to. So there are some tactical things that I do to help myself feel safe so that I feel safe feeling my emotions. One of those things is I love taking off my feet and my feet, I cannot take off my feet. One of the <laughs> things I impressive. love is taking off shoes. That I know that'd be some superpower. Taking off my shoes and planting my bare feet into the earth. It helps me feel grounded. It fe helps me feel held and supported. Um, I also love a weighted blanket if I'm feeling like I just need some more help being grounded. Uh, things like a, a bubble bath, things like good food that make me happy. If you can create an environment where you feel safe in, it can help it be more supportive so that you can notice those emotions that we are then trying to move and pass through. That's great. And I, it kind of made me, I'm just freestyling here a little bit, but I had a conversation with a friend about the inner child and all that stuff. I, and, you know, that one I, I glazed over maybe too many times, but she was relating it to thinking back to all the things we liked as a child and all the things that brought us joy. And sometimes reverting back to those little things, bring us back to that, those happy you know, just free, pure moments. And she related to me, like I grew up playing baseball at a young age and I still, you know, play baseball. And I forget, like I, I have so much joy with that. It's never correlated it to like my childhood. So I wonder if we can like just dumb things down sometimes to things, simple things that just made us happy. And in, in, in those activities can have some kind of unconscious release at the same time. Yes, I love that. What's been so interesting for me is I now have a 17-month-old baby girl. And one of the most beautiful parts about parenting for me right now is it takes me back into this place where I am doing those things again that I loved doing as a kid. And I keep thinking, when did I lose this? When did I start pushing this aside because I got too busy or society told me I should be doing other things or externally I started to listen to just other voices and being able to just be with her and be present and whether we're coloring on a sheet of paper or we're collecting little rocks from the backyard or we're watering the garden, it is this practice of presence that reminds me of being a kid again. Um, and that has been really healing for me at this season of my life also. Yeah, and it makes sense to who the hell I am because I feel like I, I've, I've, I'm like just very 
playful and I like silly things. And I, and then I try to think about, maybe I'm looking too deep at it. I may be losing my father at 12 years old. It's like the Michael Jackson effect of like wanting to revert back to my childhood constantly. So I like being silly and playful and, and all that stuff. And I feel like it's just, I don't know, in our society in general, just, I don't know. It's always like, just grow up, blah, blah, blah. But no, I don't know. It's just like children are usually, not all children, you know, they go through hard things. But for the most part, I feel like by nature, children are just so happy and playful for the most part. So it's like, why would we want to divert away from that? Because we're getting older. Uh, And you know, another thing I'm kind of ranting again, another thing that really works for me is just yelling. Like have you ever just screamed? Oh, yeah. Physically let that out? We need a good yell. (laughs) You know what I've done sometimes? This is going to, you're going to be like, who is this girl? I get aches and I will write on them, whether it's a, a word or a person or something I'm just so freaking pissed off, off about. Ooh. And I'll write it on the egg and I'll go out to my back wall and I will throw them. And sometimes I will go through an entire dozen eggs. But anger is actually so healthy for us to express and we need to express it. But we've been told the opposite, that you shouldn't be angry or, or don't feel it, shove it down, right? But if you can find healthy ways to get out your anger, we need to. So I love that you just brought that up, that sometimes you just need a freaking good scream or I just need to smash things sometimes. So the <laughs> safest way for me to do that is to smash eggs at my back door wall. I love that. Just hopefully you're not having a, you're not getting triggered on Easter and you're just breaking everyone's eggs across the house. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, stupid joke. Anyway, uh, yeah, and I suggest if you're going to do the yelling therapy, I thought it was like if you have a pool, screaming underwater might be a good play. But if you have thin walls in like an apartment building or something, uh, you know, maybe screaming a pillow. Otherwise, whatever, do what you got to do. But uh, I, I do want to ask you before, you know, we get out of here, obviously, if there's anything else that you feel like you want to get off your chest, go ahead. But how are you doing today? Like, what is your process today, years later? And remind us how many years it's been. Is it three, three years or so? Yeah, it's been three years. You know what's interesting? Um, I'm still in weekly therapy. I want to be really open and honest about that. I think that a lot of times we and society gives us a timeline for our grief. But the truth about grief is there literally is no timeline. And you know, you can be decades down the road from that event and it's still impacting you. And of, of course it is because there's love there. Uh, for me right now, something that can happen when you become a parent and you're parenting your children, it can bring up stuff that happened in in childhood. And for me, I have lived in this pattern of things being in survival mode for so long and so stressful that I get really scared now for the other shoe to drop. So it's almost like the better things get for me externally, the conflict arises even deeper internally. And so This year, that's something that I've really struggled with now that I'm healthy, now that my baby girl is here, um, because it wasn't easy to get her here even after that loss. There's just a lot of things involved. I get nervous that I'm going to lose it because I've lost it before. And I know that pain. And so the hypervigilance of my brain and my emotions trying to protect me from the what ifs is something that I um, very much struggle with. And I experience so much joy. And I'm so grateful for this work that I get to do now and the relationships that I have. And so I very much live in this grief world of and, and they both exist and I work through it consistently. Yeah, it's so real. And it's ironic that you're bringing that up because I was thinking about, um, 
you know, something something that I want I, I plan on doing. I need to shape my own message, but I, I really hope to find a, a, a voice of my own to speak from my own experiences, but not just my own experiences. More importantly, what I've learned from people like you and all the hundreds of people that I've spoke to on my podcast, because I've learned so much. And I, I, I want to be, I want to find my voice and have these conversations. And when I was just like, just grazing over it, I'll be quick, everyone. And the one thing I was thinking about, like one thing I feel like I've really learned with my experience was, you know, there's, there's fear and there's gratefulness. I feel like from losing someone either at a young age or losing someone in general in your situation, I feel like there's, there could be an inherent fear. Oh my God, the realization that anything could happen that when it hits close to home, it's like, oh my God, this can happen. And when it happens to you, maybe the rest of your life, you could live in fear thinking the other shoe is going to drop. And uh, I, I, you might have that fear of uh, just losing something because it happened to me. This might happen again. You're living in uh, angst and all that stuff. Or the other side maybe of the coin is you live in gratefulness because you realize how quickly things can be taken from you. And I think that's a fine line. And I feel like hopefully I didn't misunderstand what you just said, but there is that fine line between living in fear because of losing something, whatever it may be, or living in gratefulness because you just lost something. And those two paths are polar opposites, but also kind of walking a fine line of parallelism, you know? Yeah. And honestly, sometimes I feel like I feel both of them at the same time. And that's okay too. Um, and I love what you said. And these conversations that you're leading are so important because so many people are struggling with this, but we feel alone in it. I, th- I think grief has this really tricky way of making us feel like we're the only ones going through it. But the reality is, is that we all are. And that's part of the human experience that connects us together. Amen. And that's the thing. It's like, it's ironic that we could feel so alone in something that's so universal. And against what we've already covered is that grief isn't just biological. There's so many facets of grief. And if there's any experience that kind of goes across the board, it's grief. And I think that's an important conversation. Even though this is focused on biological death, I, I feel like the same mechanisms can be applied in different layers of whatever the heck we're going through. It's crazy. Totally. But Ashley, thank you. I want to thank you again for being here. Before we get out of here, uh, please... Just let us know. I'll, I'll drop everything as I usually do for every, all my Dead Talk listeners uh, to, to find Ashley, her books, and you know her pages and all, all the work that she's doing. But if there's anything you want to tell us you got going on or this, that, the other, or just bow out of here wherever you please. The mic's yours if you have anything to say. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for letting me join on your conversation today. You can come find me on Instagram at Ashley K. Lemieux. I love our community there. And then I also have a weekly podcast called healing her that I would love to hang out with you on too. Yeah, anyway, I'm going to listen to you. I don't think your intro says it anymore from last I checked like the recent episode. In your intro, you said you just try to find a way out, but you really were looking for a way in. And yeah. I thought that was really just makes sense to everything you kind of just mentioned today about not running away from it and finding a way through it, in it, and not get away from it. So I thought that was just really powerful. Thank you. Of course. All right, y'all. Another episode of Dead Talks. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you all for listening. And uh, I guess we'll see you next time. Bye.